tea, toast and tactics. Sick of strategy? Let's have a brew and get into the tactical detail. Informal chats with practitioners. Hello and welcome back to the Tea, Toast and Tactics. I'm talking again to Ash. Ash, how are you? I'm very well. You're your poor, poor listeners. They're lucky, lucky people. <laughs> yeah. That's what they are. Yet again, we are we are without tea and toast, or rather I'm without tea. I had a coffee, but I drank it already. And uh, you're on coffee and cake, I think. My mother's homemade fruitcake. Lovely. Today we're going to talk about night fighting and we're going to talk about control measures. Really exciting stuff. The, the reason we think we can talk about that is because, uh, like in the last podcast, in case you didn't hear it, but we've we've recently come back from exercise in Kenya uh, and have had a lot of time to think and talk about night fighting. Ash, what have you got to say? Well, first thing I'll say is that there is a load of good stuff out there already written, which is perfectly good common sense stuff that I had read prior to going to Kenya, things like then Major Duncan Mann, now Colonel Duncan Mann, but his when he was OCPCD, he wrote a really good article about why we're bad at night fighting or students are bad at night fighting and how we get better at it. There's obviously a doctrine note on the AKX about fighting at night. Like There's loads of good literature out there about night fighting. And the reason I think it's we wanted to discuss this in, this in this podcast was that actually what I found when I went out to Kenya was my blokes were able to do stuff at night like that wasn't an issue but they just had an almost complete lack of familiarity with the kit and this I guess the ramifications of night fighting we successfully achieved black attack up to company level I wasn't expecting to do that I've got a relatively new company like I was really impressed with the way the blokes handled fighting at night and they, and that wasn't therefore the issue in terms of like the tactics and all that sort of stuff like we broadly did daylight attacks but at night my main my sort of issue with the blokes is that it's kind of lost from our, our sort of DNA, I guess, of uh, being a rifle company. Platoon commanders didn't know that they needed to build a CWS FS thermal sighting or an LLM shoot into the range package that we had. Like I had to grip them because on day two, we hadn't done any of that. Section commanders hadn't spoken to their blokes and figured out exactly who was going to carry which night sight as we went through the sort of progression. The blokes themselves didn't really get how to track and identify a target using the laser before you engage it. And then which sort of which scenario required or which which system, I guess, they were carrying was better for target identification versus then target engagement and whether or not your bloke who carries the thermal site actually then it's great. He's great. He can see everything in the thermal spectrum and he can crack on and fire away. But actually, if he needs to get his whole section engaging that target, well, he needs to switch to the LLM and use a laser. And and there was just that lack of, and I, I think it boils down to lack of familiarity with the kit. Like no one knew various different command levels, what they needed out of the kit and equipment that the army has resourced them with, which actually isn't that bad. HMMBS might be pretty old and rickety now, but we do take some really good kit with us when we go out the door, but the blokes just didn't know how to use it. And I guess that's, like I said, there's no like light bulb moment in terms of night fighting we did out in Kenya where I'm like, wow, we tried this and it was amazing. Like we just, we did normal tactics and we did them at night. But in terms of a sort of worn off or something to flag up on in future or in other rifle company commanders who are going to go and do stuff at night, it's that you really do need to educate your blokes in extreme levels of detail that you didn't, you probably didn't think you needed to before you go. And you need to make sure these things are ticked off on an MEL somewhere because your sort of your assumption that your platoon commanders will know they need to do a CWS range, like that's that's wrong. It's, it's interesting you bring up the the CWS because we have a lot of 
we have a lot of night viewing aids now, don't we? So night, mm. night viewing aids, of the right devices, night viewing devices, MVDs. We've got a whole range of those from the from the HMMVS, the head mounted goggles, to the CWF, which I think is a common weapon site. Was that what that stood for? I think so. And that that has probably fallen off the what is a cool night site and what isn't now that we have things like the the thermal sites and the LLMs yeah. and the slightly newer ones. And it's easy to forget that that night site, but that is a that has a zoom on it, doesn't it? That's like a two times yeah. magnification or four it, times. Exactly. And I mean, again, one of these articles that I read before, um, if you look at if thermal is like amazing, thermal can identify to kilometers away and then recognize that target at about a K, which is obviously far beyond any of your platoon level weapon systems range. CWS is like the next best thing. CWS can identify a target, I think, out at two kilometers and recognize the target at something like 600 meters, which means that on the right appropriate weapon system, like you can be engaging at night at the maximum range of your weapon system and what that means is you get you win that firefight because you're if you've put cws which like i said can identify targets out to a k if you put that on your gpmg for example you can be hosing targets at 800 meters at night yeah and but people don't like using it because it's old and it's a bit heavier uh, yeah exactly pull up a sandbag i'll tell you a story but like the old maxi kites that you have mounted on yeah. 50 cows and that now like we used to have around with those on like what they called lsws and stuff back in the day people can stop whinging but, but like the cws at the moment is a really good capability that we just don't employ or we did employ it we put it on a, we, we did put it on a cws mount on the gpmg blokes didn't really like using it again it's heavy and all this and obviously now it's been taken away from us because of safety concerns and my lord we need to invest in getting something similar back but yeah we do have a re- real great range of capability at night but we just lost the experience or the, the, like i said this sort of dna that everyone knows if you take a night site or take a sight off your rifle theoretically you've got to re-zero the thing no one really applies that to any anything when it comes to night firing. Like I, like I said, I actually got to the point that on some of my ranges, we were taking things like thermal downrange, and specifically, it was only to be used for target identification, not target engagement. Like how have we got to that point where my blokes don't know that they need to zero that thing? Do you know what I mean? It was it was frustrating to me, but also it's fifty percent my fault. I did not go into that level of detail in that sort of MEL construction because I just assumed that. It's a platoon level weapon system. My platoon commanders, or platoon level, not weapon system, platoon level system. My platoon commanders will be over all over the importance of it. Well, I think it's easy to forget that when you layer all these capabilities together, it sounds super staff officer chat this. Oh, but when you put all these things together, they they offer you a whole different range of abilities to engage people. But the easiest thing to do is just wear your goggles and and indicate and engage targets with the laser on the end of your weapon. But that's only going to work up to maybe 200 meters. I know. And you look, I mean, I don't know, you think about the night night attacks we did, the, the Illum wasn't great. I wouldn't say it was, it wasn't particularly bad Illum, but it wasn't great Illum either. And we were struggling to identify targets beyond about 50 to 80 meters. And don't get me wrong, like, I know we're not seeing a muzzle flash of an enemy shooting at us and on and so forth, but... If your first target engagement is at 80 meters, you're going to you're going to be you're defeated. Exactly. We want to be pre-seeing them and shooting them before they even get a chance to fire their round. If you're locating the enemy through their muzzle flash, then 
you're, yeah. you're in a position that you don't necessarily want. You're in their killing zone. You're in an area of their choosing, which is yeah. not. But that, that sort of link between section level or platoon level of one section, one of the section commanders carries a thermal sight. You push him up onto the high ground. He scans it. He pings targets across to like, I don't know, the GPMG gunner who's on the CWS because the section commander can't engage at 800 meters, but the, the GPMG gunner on the CWS can and all that sort of like none of that, which I kind of thought we would get to because we weren't starting from zero. And I think it's because of lack of familiarity, which in its itself a problem, like we store our weapons separate to all of those sites. Like there's no LLM attached to your weapon system when it's in the storage. When the blokes go on a tab, like you don't pick up any on that. Like blokes just fiddle with the kit and they get used to it and they get to know it. They get that muscle memory just from fiddling. Like you don't get any of that with the way we have our sort of our get up, our setup at the moment in Brigade. Well, that's um, something that's something that we're changing. And I guess yeah, something indeed. that we would we'd advise other people to do is yeah, when, when you're taking your company out on a on a tab, that's a good chance to check that the guys are looking after their weapon systems, they've got everything on exactly. it how they want to, to have it. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Alienist saves lives. That's fact. That's but, fact. And those weapons should be should be stored with all of that on so that they're good to go. Yeah. And those night sites we don't, I, I get we're not in the line of everyone having their own weapons cage and all that, but the fact that the knights, the blokes don't inherently know who owns what knight site and it's zero to them as part of the ACMT package you go through annually as on your mats or whatever, like that was, seems crazy to me. People um, who are doing that, I think are doing that, are doing it right. And that's, yes. that's something that we are we coming can... to very soon. Indeed. And we think the the other thing that I wanted to talk about with night fighting, Frosty, if I may, was the sort of identify friend or foe, cool. I think. But, but, but sorry, but yeah, thank you. But broadly, back in Afghan veterans, remember, we used to have things like Mockingbirds. We used to have better glint tape. We used to have all sorts of stuff that meant at night you could see your bloke to your left and right. Now, it's difficult because one hand, when you go up against a peer enemy we were talking about how you need to maximize your use of cam and con uh, camouflage and concealment at night as well because obviously they've got night vision devices so you're you mentioned watch straps as, uh, to minimize your glow from your wristwatch or my company when i turned up seemed to have this fad for having little mini day glow sticks on the back of their day sacks like you need to get rid of all of that because the enemy can see that as well but then on the other hand the only reason that I we were able to be very risk aware in inverted brackets during the night fight in the night firing out in Kenya because for safety reasons you had two silooms on your body one on your helmet one on your back day sack webbing or whatever which meant you were lit up like a Christmas tree and therefore there were no there was no need for I guess effective control measures because you could see everyone on the range even if they were in a bush you could see them and therefore you, there is an argument to be had about what what measures you need to put in place to to be able to identify friend and fo- friend from foe at night and we need we don't have that in the field army anymore we did have it in afghan we don't have it now but we probably do need to have something on the shelf available to us if we don't go up against that peer peer plus enemy well clearly in the last campaign or one you and i fought in it was easy to own the night and that's probably where an awful lot of these of the laziness has come from because you're mm. fighting in an opponent who might have had first generation night vision devices but you, you were confident that they couldn't see you regardless of how you lit yourself up clearly you can't you can't do that oh i suppose you can you can make a decision if you're in a firefight you can probably afford to switch something on maybe yeah. briefly as you move from your last bound position as a signal to to switch yeah i do but i do think there's an argument we we haven't got any kit on the show we haven't yet tested we've tested the old mockingbird theory i guess because we do that on the range with two silos on the man 
we know that that could translate across to a bit of kit on the shelf for IFF in the future. Like we, we know the theory works. We've done it on a range. You let, like people that like a Christmas tree, you take that on operations with the bit of kit that we get on the shelf. I think so. Yeah, there's uh, something called a Hellstorm or Hellstar, Hellstar, which might be a, a good interim solution because it's obviously got an NSN. What we haven't tested is your reversionary method, and we haven't trialed that properly because at the moment, blokes are going down range, lit up like Christmas trees. What you need to do to make sure that the reversionary method works is to minimize the light signature of soldiers as they go down a range and that your section in fire support doesn't see anything from that flanking position until the or flanking formation until that silume gets thrown up and then you can see how that affects the control measures you need to apply at night at the moment we don't really need control measures at night because you can see everyone yeah so that for that reversionary thing specifically for b company was was two siloms in a taped together in a cross yeah and then that would you throw that it looked like a buzzsaw when you threw it in the air yeah but I mean, obviously, live firing—it was like you've you've already said—we were all lit up like Christmas trees anyway. You're just kind of going through the motions of doing it. But similar to, I think, your company did the same thing in the trenches. We used our company flag as a marker yeah, to, yeah. to see where the forward line of own troops was. Just having something in your pocket that you can you can safely show where you are immediately <laughs> before you do something. But yeah, but you, I think you, the problem is you need that, depending on one, how swept up your section commander or your platoon commander is with their navigation and where they're going to drop the assaulting troops off. But like during the day, it's really easy to see, to see where the target is and to have a rough idea of the terrain to know where your section are going to launch from, guys are going to launch from, because you've got depth perception. Whereas I think at night, it's a lot harder. And therefore, you do need, I think, to track better during nighttime those troops that are going to do a flanking attack because your dudes who are in fire support could be engaging a target that is either too far or too too close ranges could be you know, their range settings on the rifle like all these sort of things could be going slightly wrong which then just increases the risk of those flanking flanking guys i mean obviously if you're if you're if your um, section commander goes and drops his section off too far past the target you've got you've immediately got a fratricide issue which you which you have which you can mitigate if where that section are as they're going on their way round. if you do it completely completely no IFF measures and you just at the last minute you just see that thing cartwheeling through that silent cross cartwheeling through the air I still think there's a bit of an issue there with the sort of control measure piece and just trying to minimize fratricide yeah yeah but we haven't tested it because but again like I said we we need to test this I think it's a great theory and we should try to go reversion as possible because then it's just easier to escalate if we go against a peer non-peer enemy but we're going to have to push pretty hard at, at certain levels to practice this practice a sort of slightly more risk aware version of a night range yeah we should let's start talking about control measures yes we've we've talked about there being broadly two types of control measures restrictive control measures like fire coordination lines all all the things that fall in that limits of exploitation exploitation things to to box people in which Mm. are really useful and we've both found those useful on the exercises Mm. we've been through in fact through our career far have have been a, a very useful thing to have and you hear, I think, when you're doing staff planning control, they, they give you freedom. By being constrained, you're free to do things within that area, which makes life a lot easier for you. But right yeah. down at this tactical level, sometimes it's hard to remember that. But there are another type of control measures that are not restrictive. I don't know what the right word for them is. Passive? That's no, probably not it. They're not freedoms, really, are they? But yeah, if only we had that synonym spell checker that I use for all my report writing. <laughs> I know where you're going, though. I know where you're going. But what we're talking about actions on. That's what Indeed. we're talking about. And they're, they're different because they, they give you something to do rather than something that you can't do. Indeed. Indeed. And 
I don't know. How, so something my platoon commanders raised to me at the end of the live firing range was that there was a friction between some of the constrictive control measures I was emplacing on them and some of the actions on that I was hoping that they would then do. There was tension, which had priority, and that really result that really manifested itself with the fact that I had obviously drawn on a bit of terrain. I'd drawn platoon level objectives, ABC, whatever, whatever I call them. I think I'd named them after the DZ flash colours, actually. But then my given limit of exploitations as the end of that objective to allow an echeloning platoon to come through. But I had actions on of my section commanders being able to roll up. Well, you know, it's not, it's not even action on. It's a company SOP, really. I mean, it's probably everyone's SOP. If a target pops up 50 meters away from a section, they just clear it. It's close that if they stay where they are, they're all going to die. They just get on and attack it and destroy it. And therefore, what happened when there was a platoon had reached its limit of exploitation, but there was then a, a target within what was the next platoon's objective, but it was closer than 50 meters to the lead, lead, lead section. What did they do at that point? I hadn't thought that beforehand and it raised its ugly head during the attack and I, and broadly i was running around dealing with other stuff at the time i just gripped my two platoons and what we had was a farcical situation of doing a forward uh, relief in place about 20 meters away from enemy target which obviously isn't good and i get in real life like would you know some of the section one section command would just like shoot the dude or whatever i get i get that there was a bit of a rangeism in there but it's it certainly got me thinking on how do you get around that problem of being really of constraining your blokes but then providing actions on that are supposed to free them i don't there's never going to be a rule that fits all of these things it's just something that we all need to be aware of as commanders is that at some point your your constrict your control measures are going to come into conflict with your actions on and you need to be aware of that and and maybe war game the points that it might happen before you go out the door and that's something i hadn't done i just said right well i've got control measures i've got actions on ticked those boxes let's crack on I'll, I'll be able to deal with everything on the ground but actually when it came to it because of because of the noise you know broadly commanding a company group in the middle of an attack i wasn't able to deal with that one that specific event and had i thought about it beforehand and gone right what's going to happen what i've given this control measure of the edge the boundary the loe what happens if an enemy pops up like 10 meters after that like do i give them more of a limit of exploitation or have i have i made the have i got the right control measures in place perhaps i didn't i didn't know i didn't have war gamed at a company level basically and i think that's probably just a steer for future for company commanders who are going to do this sort of stuff in the future and it's certainly one i'll take away it's obviously going to be situational dependent but it's something you need to think about beforehand what what happens when your control measures conflict with your actions on and war game those out because otherwise you get platoon commanders like a year out of pcd and I've done 20 years, and they're like, you're, I'm better than you. And you're like, damn it, you are. I mean, yeah, it's just about the list of people who are better than you, Ash. That you could be here for some time. But uh, leaving that aside, you, you make a, a good point. And I think I think in, in exercises, it, it's going to happen less and in real life more. And when you're when you're breaking your objective down and you're deciding your control measures and your actions on and stuff before you before you go out on your operation, you're obviously you're applying all the intelligence you have to it. You're doing your analysis, but that not might necessarily be your bronze, silver, gold, or maroon, blue, green isn't necessarily how the enemy have broken down their own control measures. So the the chance of your limit of exploitation for one of your subunits or one of your platoons or whatever falling halfway between an enemy's position and then the likelihood of that not working and you having to having to do a like you say a forward passage of lines under contact unnecessarily is is definitely something worth 
worth thinking about before when you're looking at your breaking your objectives down i guess one of the questions you can ask yourself is how have the enemy broken this down like yeah where are where are their platoons sat what where, so, where are they going to reinforce from which i know you, you you probably have thought about a bit but have have we really thought about what's well we don't i'd like to think that if we deployed you would get your coist in they do the enemy perspective they do the question one of your estimate and all that sort of stuff we didn't have that but I was thinking what we do have is a company 2IC and another role, obviously these things are all actions on control measures. Like they're all part of the, what part of the orders are they? Good God, I don't know that's off the top of my head. I do, but I've forgotten it. Coordinating instructions. Coordinating instructions. Thank you, Frosty. Jesus, that's bad, isn't it? But yeah, they're all part of the coordinating instructions. Just shows I'm a human being though, right? They're all part of the coordinating instructions. It makes me more accessible. And- hopefully or more of an idiot but i initially went out of my way to make sure that my company to ic did my coordinating instructions because at battle group level obviously the co gives the mission intent scheme maneuver all that sort of governs but then he, he broadly hands over to like the chief staff for coordinating instructions or maybe the ops officer he has his he has his dude from the he has his io to do the question one bit the only picture and so i try to replicate that at company level if you get your company to ic to perhaps do that break down break down the ground having conscious of the the enemy side of it perhaps that means you as a commander aren't as wedded to it as well which me which therefore means that if he's broken down the control measures and he's broken down from an hopefully from an enemy perspective rather than me making the plan i obviously want to break the ground down that suits my plan if he's done that side of it you, you immediately get a bit of red teaming going on, a bit of war gaming going on, mm. don't you? And if I'm not wedded to it, if it's not my sort of control measures that I've in place, when I'm actually commanding it, and the actions on probably are more, like, we've probably developed company SOPs, company actions on throughout my tenure in command. If I, mean, so I kind of am more wedded to the actions on then than the control measures, then hopefully I won't be basically having that tension myself because I'll immediately lean to whatever's just going to solve the problem in front of me rather than trying to lean back on the plan that I'm wedded to back in my head. If that makes sense, but no, I think it makes sense because perhaps if you weren't wedded to your control measures, then you wouldn't have done that forward passage of lines. You'd have just thrown an additional section to that pursuing commander. He'd have cleared that position, and then it would have rolled on. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's. I think that's something I would. That was my sort of solution going forward. Was going to be don't own much of the plan. Get your company to IC involved as much as possible. But specifically, he could do that sort of breaking down of the ground from an enemy perspective. If you don't have that coist. He can then provide you those control measures, which your actions on are effectively wargaming the control measures as well. Rehearsal of concepts. Hmm. Did you do that at company level? I'm a massive believer in the rock drill. It was useful, even at company level, to go through it. Uh, we did it at every opportunity. I think it really helped put a picture in, in the blokes' minds of what was going to happen. What I, what I found was really useful, and I think people at all levels should probably be aware of this, is a rehearsal of concept drill is an opportunity to you know make minor changes to the plan i think if you go down the line of a rehearsal of a concept drill needing to be faultless needing to be questionless and therefore rehearsing the rehearsal ad infinitum it looks good like you've You've lost the point the point entirely like there are things that people are going to drag out like that control measure versus action on piece is a perfect example that i probably didn't allow to come out in a in a rock drill but it's the sort of thing that would come out in a rock drill and if people are, if, if the right environment is set of like questioning, not just like my name is Corporal so-and-so and at this point in the battle, I'm going to go and stand at this point on the map and I'm going to defeat the enemy. But if, if he's able to then come back and go, boss, where actually just at this point, where am I, where are my fire support coming from? Like if he's, if he's as that bloke on the ground there, if he's unhappy at that point, 
well, my word, he needs to know the answer there because he doesn't need to find out halfway down the range, does he? I couldn't agree more. We use rock, we use rock drills at company and platoon level, and I made them as informal as possible. I know there's a there's a place for for formalized or formal feeling rock drills, and it probably is at the battle group level because there's an awful lot of people and a lot of information that has to go across. And I can see why people attempted to rehearse them and make sure that they all they seem really scripted and go really well. But it was a flipping comment I made earlier about the about missing the point because there is a there is a point to that too. But having that that rock drill where people feel that they can talk and explain, but often in their own words, what they think is happening at that particular point in the battle or how you think the battle is mm. going to go and where they think they are in relation to other people, and that's not necessarily a scripted. I am course I'm X Y Z. I'm a blah 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 and all this. It's I'm smudge. I'm looking over my corner over my shoulder. There's whoever uh, and this is the guy that's going to link up with him and drag him onto the next position it's that that sort of thing yeah i, I think I, I agree with you the, the moment i think the moment you do write a script you've immediately lost the purpose of a rock drill full stop but i i, I, I don't know i mean no, i'll be honest with you my last job was at arc core headquarters and I, i've sat through i don't know like four or five core level rock drills and like they were an opportunity to change the plan slightly i mean it frustrated me no end because I was in the G35 shops at that point. Any any changes to the plan meant I had to go back and like conduct a new estimate and redraft the OSW and push that out to like the get it translated for the Italian division and all this sort of stuff. It was a right lick, but but actually like if if a three star core headquarters is comfortable making dis, making changes in the rock drill based on problems that they you as a planner haven't foreseen because you're wedded to the plan and frankly some two-star gen divisional head commander comes back to you and is like uh what's happening here going i'm a major and i actually got this wrong yeah fair point we'll make that change like if they're comfortable i think we probably should all be comfortable at all levels just having this flexibility in your rock drill purpose in the in the in the way you do these things we definitely should and at company level it's it's too easy because the lads have you've probably got your section commanders there they're stood in your model pit with you and they can just change what they've got written in their notebooks. Yeah, it's too easy because we own it. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, it was uh, brilliant. It was, I think, genuinely battle winning is not the right way of saying it because like those figure 11 targets are hellishly difficult. But it was, it was the one thing I think that it translated what was a, probably a very boring set of orders because I am dull. It, you, you are know, dull. Gave it, li- gave it life. And then, and so you corporal, corporal whoever just was able to figure out what his part in the plan was from, from the well, rock drill. So B Company, I misread the warning order I got through one attack and got my uh, timeline completely incorrect for my night mm. attack and found out when the Observer Mentor rocked up. I was like, shouldn't you be giving your orders now and setting off shortly? Ah, okay. Orders, orders cancelled, only a rock drill. That was all we had time to do. I mean, a very brief set of orders and then straight yeah. into a rock drill after the lads had five minutes to digest what they've been told uh, and it went swimmingly. Like, it went absolutely to plan because we because we did the rock drill. I think it's important to draw a distinction between the rock drill and rehearsals. Yes, because of, like the the same word is in both of them. But <laughs> the rock the rock drill is not rehearsals are not really the opportunity. To, I think are not the opportunity to come back and be like oh, we should go left flanking. That's the rock drill. The rehearsal is then is the much lower level tactical stuff. Which is where you're going. This is now the plan. You know, we've rock done the rock drill, and actually, based on this rock drill, we probably need to rehearse these points of contention or points of issue that 
the rock drill has kind of brought out might be a bit difficult and we've already come up with a plan in the rock drill so now we're going to go and rehearse exactly what's happening yeah for us that was always things like coming together at the company frv yeah. we're doing dispersed maneuver or do you mean that was that was what you are doing the rock drill was an opportunity to have a bit of free play with it make sure, test things make sure they worked come up with a concurred plan let's face it it's my, still my plan, but there have been a few changes that section commanders or whoever have made that make my plan better. Yeah. And that's the rock drill, I think. I, I felt sometimes we do things more down the rehearsal road rather than the rehearsal of concept road when it should be the rehearsal of concept. Anyway. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Couldn't agree more. Good, good. Well, nice of you to surprise me with that one, Frosty. Well, I thought I'd throw something in there, see if you can think on your feet. Um, Obviously not while well, I'm sat down for a start. Is, uh, do you think that's us finished? Because I'll be honest, I've got to go do some fizz at some point. You, you definitely do. Thank you for listening to Tea Toast and Tactics. If you enjoy our content, head to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and rate us. It helps us improve. Look out for the next episode soon.